The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance, that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash round his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. But I guess that when you feel few in number... And when, more importantly, as as an individual, when you become a Christian, you feel a bit weak and vulnerable, you feel like um, in a bit of a minority in this culture at the moment, in this country, unlike many other parts of the world, you feel, well, Christianity uh, isn't a majority pursuit at the moment, is it? Um, You can kind of think, have I chosen the right side? Um, Have I joined the winning team? Was this really a sensible idea to do this? Um, Have I done something, have I made a mistake here? 
For those of you who are investigating Christianity, you might be thinking something like that. Uh, am I actually joining a group who are on their way out? Is Christianity finished? Um, you gather that lots of the tr- traditional churches in the country are emptying, and in many cases, that's a good idea, the quicker the better, to be honest. Um, because what goes on there is not um, really explaining the truth of Christ. But there are lots of other churches that are growing, but it's still not a majority, it's not a majority thing, is it? You kind of think, am I making a mistake in joining the Christians? Or would I be better off with somebody else? Well, in our passage uh, today, as we begin this uh, teaching series in the book of Revelation, um, we'll discover why it's a very good idea to join the team that is supporting Jesus Christ. Uh, It's called uh, uh, the Revelation or Revelation. The original word is Apocalypse because it's a revelation from God about what's going to happen in the future to make sense of what's happening now. Uh, In other words, it tells us what God's going to do in the future so that we can prepare for it and be reassured that joining Christ's supporters is a very good idea. So why don't we begin with prayer and ask God to help us understand this for ourselves. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word, the Bible. Thank you for the presence of your own Holy Spirit here with us now to help us understand what it means. And whether we're very new to Christian things and perhaps find this all a bit strange, or very familiar with it and hungry to learn from your word, we pray, Lord, that You'd help each one of us to concentrate, to understand, and to realise what this means for our own personal lives. So we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Verses uh, 1 to to 3 introduce what this book of Revelation is about. Uh, Let me read it again to you just quickly. The revelation of Jesus Christ, so it's from Jesus, which God gave him, so it's direct from God, to show his servants, Christians, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, one of the apostles, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one, or happy is the person, who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it, like us today, and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So basically, uh, what John is writing down is coming soon. Let me just uh, say that um, the Revelation, the book of Revelation, as you shall discover, is an extraordinary book. And it's like a kind of uh, impressionist painting with all kinds of imagery and pictures from the Old Testament. Uh, A lot of scholars think that it's deliberately to be slightly sort of mysterious about the truth because there was so much persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire that John deliberately chose to write in a very kind of impressionistic way. But if you go back and research the background in the Old Testament, behind all the images, it's really quite easy to understand. You just kind of need to open your heart a bit to the imagery. Uh, put it this, uh, like this. When I was younger, when I was a... Um, I'm going to try and start, sound arty, because Courtney is an expert in, in art, history and so on. But when I was younger, I used to like the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. You know, the Pre-Raphaelite paintings are incredibly accurate and very, very concerned to paint reality and uh, you know, spent years over painting any painting with incredible accuracy. You know, Holman Hunt and, uh, uh, and his, his uh, mates. Um, and I used to love those paintings, very romantic paintings and very accurate. 
But as I've got older, I've begun to love, you know, post-impressionism, impressionistic paintings a lot more. So now, if you go to Paris, you go to the Musée d'Orsay, if you've been there, and to see those paintings, and to see what artists can do with a kind of slap of a slap of paint uh, across a painting, and it's much more impressionistic, and actually very, very powerful. And uh, you have to kind of open your heart to it, and try and, uh, and think about how you're reacting to the impressions that the, that the paintings give to you. And it's a bit like that in Revelation. If you're going to be kind of uh, very mechanistic about it, it's going to be a long, long process for you to work out all the details. But if you just open the poetic side of you, you know, just open up your kind of um, poetic nerves to, to, to the book, you'll find that it's really quite easy to understand. It's so obvious from the bright colours and the vivid, the vivid pictures as you go through. And basically there are two visions are given to the Apostle John, described uh, in Revelation, uh, written about AD 65, by the Apostle John to Christians under great pressure to explain what's happening in the world until Christ returns. And as you then find from the rest of uh, uh, this opening greeting, verses 4 to uh, uh, 5, John is writing to the seven churches in the province of Asia, he writes on behalf of Jesus Christ who is ruling to see in verse 5 the firstborn from the dead the ruler of the king of the earth kings of the earth who is redeeming uh, verse 5 who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood verse 7 and he's returning look he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him he is the king who is ruling redeeming and returning one day then verses 9 to 11 he explains who he's writing to. Uh, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he was in exile for being a Christian on the island of Patmos. On the Lord's day, that Sunday, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And those are real places in what is now Turkey, the churches of Asia Minor. And uh, those churches were churches that uh, had been founded by the apostles uh, in the area, and they were real churches. And so John was writing um, letters and writing these visions for these seven churches and all the churches they represent the ones who are under great pressure in the Roman Empire, as many Christians feel under pressure today. And the important thing to understand right at the beginning of Revelation is that John is writing as if to a band of brothers. I don't know whether you've seen the uh, ten-part epic World War II uh, series called Band of Brothers. Uh, All Christians should watch it. I think it's compulsive. Uh, compulsory uh, watching. It basically tells the story of 101st Airborne uh, uh, Division, American troops, uh, the Easy Company, and their journey from the D-Day landings until they finally arrived in Berlin. And uh, it's uh, an award-winning series of of programmes. It shows the savagery of war. It shows the camaraderie of of men suffering together in battle. It shows the self-sacrifices necessary for victory. But uh, what is uh, plain in um, retrospect, as you look back, 
is that actually victory itself was never in doubt. Once the Allied forces uh, landed, the D-Day landed, and flooded into France and Germany with the Russians coming from the north, victory was inevitable. Now, the fighting was painful, there were many lives lost, but there was never any doubt that Hitler would lose and that the Allies would win from the date of the landings. And so all the struggles of, of this of Easy Company, they are the struggles in a winning campaign. There was never any doubt that they were going to lose. And it's important to understand that from John's perspective, as he writes, as brother, he says, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom that are ours. He writes, after Jesus Christ has died on the cross and risen from the dead. You see, he knows that having paid for our sins on the cross and risen to the right hand of God, that Jesus has been enthroned, it is all over. Christ has sat down at the right hand of God, he is enthroned as the king over all kings, and there is no longer any doubt about who will rule eternity. It is Jesus, it is God. So when he writes about the struggles here, he's wanting to encourage these scattered little churches, little house churches under real pressure, he wants to say to them, I know it's tough, I know that sometimes it's hard being a Christian, There are real struggles. It's really painful sometimes being a Christian. But you are on the winning side because the battle has already been won. You see? So although there are still battles to come, the decision is not in doubt. And that's how it is for us as Christians. You see, if you enrol with Jesus Christ, you are enrolling with the one who's already risen from the dead. It is all over. There there is no more struggle as it were, as to who's going to win. He's risen from the dead. Of course, if you haven't worked out that he's risen from the dead, you'll want to contest that truth. Great. Search the evidence. The more you can, the better. When you discover that he is alive, then you'll know it's all over. And he writes to encourage his brothers, essentially, to keep going. I want to look with you in particular at verses 12 to 18 to introduce you to this king, this prophet priest and king, to introduce you to Jesus and to show you what it's like. But let's just look at the context, verse 12. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands. And amongst the lampstands was somebody. Now each church is a golden lampstand. You see, in the Old Testament, the temple of God, it was all kind of uh, imagery in the furniture to help people understand great truths about God. And so in the temple, which represented the presence of God, uh, there was one lampstand with seven lamps. Now there are seven lampstands, and the number seven and the lampstands, it kind of means all the churches of all the nations. So it summarises all the churches in the world. And what's important is that each church, each lampstand, lives in the presence of God. So no church, as it were, is kind of beyond the presence of God. There's no church that's kind of uh, outside the rule of Jesus Christ. Every church exists in the presence of God, just as this one does. This little church here lives and gathers in the presence of the living God. His spirit is here. Every time we gather and every time any of his people travel around, his spirit is with us. We live in the presence of God. And the purpose of the lampstands was to uphold the lamps. 
Just as the purpose of any church is to uphold the light of Christ in the darkness of the world. Uh, The world is imprisoned in darkness of lies and immorality and doesn't know the glorious truth about Jesus. And the job of every church is to witness to Christ, to hold up the lamp that is the light of Jesus Christ in the world. And of course, uh, within the the church, within the, the temple, the high priest would replenish the oil and trim the wicks of the lamps. And so here in this uh, description here, this image that's given to, to John, I saw seven golden lampstands, there was somebody amongst the lampstands, tending the lamps. As it were, replenishing the oil, empowering them with his spirit, trimming back the wicks with his word, as he trims back sin, if you like, in our lives. There is someone amongst the lampstands who is the high priest, who is, of course, Jesus. The Lord is amongst his churches. And you should never think that your church or your life is, as it were, isolated from God. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is present here by his Spirit amongst you. Now, I want you to realise what this Jesus is like, because it's incredibly encouraging. Verse 13. Amongst the lampstands was, I just want to very briefly go through this description. Firstly, one like a son of man. Now, in other words, this is a description of Jesus as he is now. Not as he was a couple of thousand years ago, uh, you know, as a a boy growing up in his his father's carpenter shop. Uh, Not as he was once he died. I mean, the Muslims all think he's dead. No, uh, he's no longer dead. He's no longer weak, like a baby in his mother's arms or dying in her arms. He is risen from the dead. He is one like a son of man. And this description, son of man, comes from the Old Testament in Daniel 7. And it's a description of the king who is given everlasting dominion by the Ancient of Days. In this description, you see, the Lord, as it were, comes on the clouds of heaven into the presence of the living God. And the Ancient of Days, God himself, says to his king, have everything. Have absolutely everything everything, it's all yours and he's given everlasting dominion forever, over everything and I wonder whether you realise what an extraordinary thing it is that there is a man ruling the universe I mean admittedly he's risen from the dead so his body is not quite like ours which is in my case is kind of failing and falling apart rather quickly but um, uh, it's the resurrected body of of a real human being a real man Jesus is a man, risen from the dead, ruling the universe. Have you ever, has it ever struck you what an extraordinary thing that is? That there is a man, a human being, translated from this world into the glory of heaven, governing the universe. It is rather wonderful to know that one of us, someone who understands us, someone who knows what it's like to yearn and to suffer and to regret and to all those things that we feel. He knows what it's like and he rules the universe. When you speak to him in prayer, you're not speaking to some distant God who wouldn't understand. You're speaking to a man who's been glorified in heaven. Now this is wonderful, you see, because it means that Jesus has won. Satan is defeated. Our Saviour is enthroned. Now, of course, if you think you're immortal and you're never going to die, perhaps it won't bother you that there is a king in heaven who is a man. But if you know that you're mortal, it is wonderful. 
that beyond the grave there is a saviour king who is Jesus waiting for us one like a son of man now what's he wearing verse 13 he's dressed in a robe down to his feet with a golden sash round his chest he has the sashed robe of priestly mediation this um, kind of uniform of the long robe and the golden sash is in the Old Testament the, the clothing of the high priest now the high priest of course had constant access to the father and uh, you read of this description in the Old Testament uh, he's permanently you see, interceding for us he's present with the father to constantly remind the father that he's paid for all our sins on the cross that we are his that he loves us and that we're on our way to be with him if you like he's our ambassador in heaven So he's there constantly in the presence of the living God to say to his father, uh, Father Rob Turner, be gentle with him, he's one of ours. Uh, I I know he lets you down sometimes, Father, but I've paid for his sins. He's completely forgiven. He's coming to be with us soon. Do look after him, Father. Isn't that wonderful? And if you ever wonder, what what is Jesus doing at the moment? I mean, where is he? Why couldn't he turn up here and give a sermon? It would be rather wonderful to be a kid. Because he's doing something rather wonderful. At this moment, he's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for all his people throughout the world. If he was here, he wouldn't be there. He is there. He's interceding for everyone else, and including us. That's fantastic. Constantly reminding the Father that we're his, that he's died for us, we're forgiven, and we're on our way to heaven. Now, of course, if you think you're perfect and you don't need anybody to represent you to the Father, then it won't be very exciting that there is a high priest in heaven. But if, like some of us, you realise we are very sinful and wicked, and we need somebody to rescue us and to die for us, and to speak to the Father for us, it is wonderful that Jesus wears the sashed robe of priestly mediation. Now notice also that he has the white hair of ancient wisdom, verse 14, for other obvious personal reasons. I'm rather fond of this verse. Uh, but verse 14, his hair, head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Now, um, white hair represents the white hair of wisdom. In other words, age. You see, this king is not young and foolish, he is ancient and wise. I mean, before he became man, he was there in eternity past. And of course, now he's there for eternity future. So there's no tyranny of youth in heaven with silly young fools running the place. He has seen it all before. He completely understands. He's not confused about anything. He's not ignorant about anybody. There is no uncertainty in his mind as to what will happen or should happen. He knows. If you like, he's our teacher. He's no fresh-faced kid just out of college with no idea what to say to us. He's learned and wise. Now, of course, if we think we know everything and we don't have anything to learn, then you won't be very excited about the fact that Jesus has the white hair of ancient wisdom. But when you realise that we're incredibly ignorant, especially of the things of God, we hardly know anything about God. It is fantastic that the risen Jesus has the white hair of ancient wisdom because we can learn from him. And it's just so exciting learning from him about God constantly as we read his word in the scriptures. He has the white hair of ancient wisdom. More than that, verse 14, he has the blazing eyes, the blazing eyes of holy 
perception. Look at verse 14. His eyes were like blazing fire. In other words, he sees everything. I don't know whether you can quite picture what's being described here. Describing this picture of Jesus with eyes, as it were, blazing on fire. He sees everything. He sees our needs. He sees our problems. He sees our sins. He sees inside us. He sees through us. He sees everything. And he sees, his eyes are on fire because he sees with blazing holiness. Fire always represents the holiness of God. His judgments are therefore pure and righteous. He is never unjust. He is never prejudiced. He sees with the loveliness of his purity and holiness. He sees without hypocrisy. He sees through our pretenses. In other words, he has x-ray eyes. He's not fooled by anything. And actually, that's very comforting. You know, all the kind of pretenses, the image that we put up from day to day. I mean, in many ways, we have to just survive, don't we? In London, you, have, you, know, you find yourself, you've got to try and, you know, keep yourself going day by day. You've got to survive. But it is rather wonderful to know, in the privacy of your own soul, that Jesus sees what you're really like. He knows, he absolutely knows the reality. He knows all the ugly bits. He knows all the struggling bits. He knows everything. And actually that's very comforting to know that he sees everything and still loves us to bits. More than that, he has, verse 15, the bronze feet of total conquest. Do you see verse 15? His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Um, I mean, this is the, the kind of the ideal man of glory from the Song of Songs. He has the kind of warrior boots. Now, these are the Terminator boots. You know, these are kind of um, stomping metal boots that crush everyone who fights against him. In other words, it's the picture. This is the king who's ready to smash uh, the earth and to smash everybody who is against him. In other words, Jesus is no cuddly softy. I mean, he's not some sort of uh, wimp in a white nighty. Um, you know, you could sort of knock him over with one punch. No, this is the Terminator King. And he will crush all opposition under his feet, like, as if we were beetles. And frankly, it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. I mean, it actually matters nothing at all. Whether you like that or not, or care about it, I mean, it doesn't matter. He will crush his enemies, and if you try and take him on, he'll crush you. That is it. He will absolutely destroy you, because he is the king. Now, of course, uh, if, if you've never dishonoured him, if you've never opposed him, then you won't worry about that. But if you've ever neglected him, as I have, if you've ever uh, ignored him, if you've ever done things he told us not to do, then you'll be rightly worried about him, him coming in judgement. It's rather alarming that this king is coming back to confront all his enemies and to crush them. More than that, he has, verse 15, the thundering voice of absolute authority. Little verse 15. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Uh, this uh, refers to a description back in Ezekiel 43. I saw the glory of God, the God of Israel, coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters. And the land was radiant with his glory. In other words, he speaks, when he speaks, he speaks with the deafening volume of a waterfall. In other words, his voice is so overwhelming, it's so loud, 
It's so overwhelming that he just dominates. There is no discussion. Uh, he settles all the arguments, he answers all the questions, he, he determines every uncertainty. Uh, he speaks with the Niagara, Niagara Falls. I don't know if you've ever sort of seen any interviews, I've seen interviews on the television where there's some journalist trying to speak to camera with the Niagara Falls behind. You know, and the Niagara Falls goes, <laughs> you know, and he's like, Here I am at the Niagara Falls! You know, <laughs> and there's a sort of deafening noise behind. And, and it's that sort of sense, it, it's, the, it's the idea that his voice is so loud, nobody can argue with him. Of course, if you want to argue with Jesus, that is a serious problem. But if you are willing to listen to him, uh, you'll have no problem hearing his voice. It's not difficult to get to know God very well through the Bible, because he doesn't whisper. You know, there's plenty of volume, it's pretty obvious. God makes himself obvious because he wants us to know him, because he loves us. He has the thundering voice of absolute authority. More than that, verse 16, he has the mighty hand of protective power. See verse 16? In his right hand he held seven stars. Now in verse 16, the the mighty hand, he holds the stars, which we read later means the angels or the leaders of the churches. In other words, the direction of the churches is in his hands. You're safe in his hands. Now thankfully it's not the elders, it's not the staff, it's not the denomination that runs the church. It's Jesus. And those are the safest hands to be in. Here's the mighty hand of protective power. I remember seeing um, a photo of um, Martin Johnson, who is the present uh, rugby coach of the England team. When he um, was the captain of the winning team, the World Cup, in 2003 in Australia, it seems a very long time ago now, too long ago. Do pray for the England team. We do want the England team to win the next World Cup. It must be our turn again. I'm not the New Zealanders. Anyway, um, I remember seeing the picture of Martin Johnson. He was this, this towering captain who just led his team to win the World Cup. And there was a shot of him afterwards holding a little girl, uh, holding a baby. And uh, I, I may be confused, to be perfectly honest, whether he had the baby then or I saw him later with his baby. But there was this World Cup winning uh, huge bloke with this tiny little baby in his arms. And you saw this kind of monster loving this tiny little baby, you kind of thought, what a wonderful thing. I mean, you would not want to try and hurt that little baby girl, would you? I mean, he'd kill you, frankly, he'd just kill you on the spot. Um, and it was a lovely picture, this tiny little girl, totally confident in this huge uh, man's arms. How much more so in the mighty hands of Jesus Christ are we safe? Your little church is safe. You don't need to worry about this church. You absolutely do not need to worry about this church. This church is in the mighty grip of the Lord Jesus himself. And he's not about to let anybody hurt it. He's not about to let anybody hurt you. Because he loves you. He has the mighty hand of protective power. Now, uh, moreover, verse 16, the sharp sword of judgment declaration. Look at verse um, uh, 16. Out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. <coughs> See, Christ is not only the saviour of all who trust in him, he is also the judge of all who oppose him. In Hebrews we read of the living and active word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's, it's an image from the Old Testament of a Thracian sword, which was the kind of um, 
I'm not sure what you call it, but it's sort of slashing, killing weapon of the Old Testament. Uh, in other words, his, his voice is like that sword, a devastating weapon to cut down enemies. Or if you prefer, it's, it's the sort of the scalpel of his word that cuts open our hearts and to cut out the tumours of sin and to strengthen uh, what is good. See, the word of God is very, very sharp. And you will find, uh, if you're new to church, you'll already be finding that when you go to a church where the Bible is taught, you will find that the words on the page, every so often, have you noticed how they stab your heart? You know, things get said and you think, cracky, that just hit me right in the heart. You know, did, did they know I was here? I mean, did, did somebody, somebody told them what I'm like? Because what's just been said is absolutely sliced straight into, into my heart. And you'll have that experience regularly when you read, read the Word of God. Because it cuts through all the pretense and judges what God sees within. And he declares with complete accuracy what needs to change in our hearts. Because, you see, out of his mouth comes the sharp sword of judgment declaration. Can I tell you that you want to hear this sword now? You want to experience your heart being sliced open. You want open heart surgery now while things can still be stitched up and made right. You do not want to wait till judgment day when it's too late. That's what's so great, you see, about hearing about the judgments of God in the word of God now. Because you get to hear them in advance. You don't want to wait till judgment day when it's too late. So this Jesus has the sharp sword of judgment declaration coming out of his voice. And finally, verse 16, he has the shining face of transcendent glory. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So just looking at him, says John, I couldn't look at him. I mean, we've seen a bit of the sun the last two weeks, haven't we? We've seen quite a lot of the sun. It's lovely, isn't it? But you can't actually look at the sun. You see the effects of the sun all around you. But as soon as you try and stare, even with sunglasses on, you know, you just can't, can you? You can't, you can't stare at Jesus either. No one stares at Jesus. You don't stare at Jesus, oh look! You know, you can't. He's too great, he's too glorious, he's too transcendent, he's too beautiful. You can't, his face is like the radiant sun. It's very much the picture also of the warriors of judges. It's the, enlight- the enlightening power of this king. And, uh, of course, you can't stare at it. Just as the, the sun empowers the earth, if you want to live in darkness, if you want to live like a cockroach, if you want to live in the darkness of lies and immorality, then don't look at Jesus. You won't enjoy looking at Jesus. But if you want to see the truth, if you want to live in the light of truth, if you want to live in the warmth of the sunshine, getting to know Jesus is a wonderful, wonderful experience. And if any of you are still kind of exploring Jesus, I want to tell you, you are doing a very sensible thing. It's a wonderful thing, you see, to know this great King whose face is the shining face of transcendent glory because Jesus is like the sunshine. He's brilliant. Brilliant in power, brilliant in warmth, brilliant in his enlightening ministry amongst us. Now, I don't know what you think about this, Jesus. I don't know whether you could put these bits together, these, these kind of uh, pastiche of, of images to create this kind of um, 
colourful image of this beautiful, transcendent, immense, powerful and slightly frightening King of Kings. The sashed robe of priestly mediation, the white hair of wisdom, blazing eyes of holy perception, the bronze feet of total conquest, a thundering voice of absolute authority, the mighty hand of protective power, the sharp sword of judgment coming out of his mouth from the shining face of transcendent glory. What does John do as he sees this, this image, this picture of Jesus? He does what everybody in the Bible does whenever they see any representation of God. He falls down flat on his face. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. See, as always, you don't stand up before Jesus and say, very nice to meet you. He's not an equal. He's overwhelmingly awesome, powerful and terrifying. Everybody who meets him falls flat on their faces. And all the, you know, the smart-mouthed atheists will be flat on their faces. And all the kings and religious leaders will be flat on their faces. And we'll be flat on our faces too. Fall down before him for he is the divine prophet speaking words of thunderous authority and the sharp judgments that determine our eternity. He is the priest who has offered a sacrifice on the cross and is now our mediator in the presence of God. He is the divine king with the bronze feet of conquest and the mighty grip and the glorious face like a sun. It is right to fall down and in our hearts and in our souls to submit ourselves. If you think that you can stand before God and argue with him, you are frankly a fool. You are a fool. But when you see what Jesus is actually like, then you will in your heart and in your soul at least fall flat in your face and say, cry for mercy. And cry for mercy. If you don't do it now, you'll do it one day. So fall down before him. But then look at what Jesus then says to John and as he says tonight. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. In other words, to anyone who falls down before Jesus in surrender to him, Jesus is willing to, to lift up, as he does for John here. And this is the point of the whole vision in the book, you see. He says, I am the first and the last. I am like the brackets of history. There is nothing before me, there is nothing after me. I hold the whole thing together in my hands. I control history, so trust me. He says, I am the living one. Yes, I was dead. I was publicly killed. But I was also publicly raised. And I am alive now forevermore. In other words, I'm permanent. There's going to be no change. I'm here to stay. So trust me. Trust me. And I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, I am the one who, because I've died for you, will release you from heaven. Sorry, will release you from the place of the dead if you trust in me. I can release you from hell into my new creation paradise if you want me to. Just trust me. Trust me. 
He has the keys of death and Hades. There's no one else. There is no one else, no one else who can set you free from hell and bring you into his heaven. There's only Jesus. I once went to see uh, an elderly lady uh, who I didn't know. I, was, I started a new job at a church in Manchester. Her name was uh, Edna. I'd not met her before. I gathered that she was probably a believer, but no one was quite sure, and that she was dying of cancer. So I went to see her in the hospital, and she was a tiny little thing. There was hardly anything left of her. And in fact, she died a couple of uh, days later. Uh, she was too weak to sit up. She was lying in her bed. And uh, I uh, said to her, hello, and she said, hello. And I uh, said, um, you know, I'm from St. Mary's Church. Oh, nice to meet you. I, I've heard who you are. And uh, I said, uh, I gather you've not got long to live. And she said, no, just, just not long now. I said, look, Edna, I'm so sorry. I don't know you, and we've not met before. So can I ask you, are you trusting in Jesus and what he did on the cross and his resurrection? Are you trusting in him for your eternity? And I swear to you, she's lying on her head, on her bed like this, and yet she gave me a withering smile. And the smile, she smiled, she said, of course I am. There's no one else. There's no one else. That's a Christian. That's a Christian. Somebody who's trusting in this Jesus to be their saviour. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Just a moment of quiet, perhaps for us to, in our hearts and souls, to fall on our faces before this King and surrender to him, before he lifts us up to reassure us. Dear Jesus, thank you for reassuring us that to be one of your followers is a very sensible thing, indeed a wonderful thing. Thank you for the encouragement of this vision, of seeing something, even just with this imagery, to see something of what you're really like. We praise you that you are the Son of Man, the, the, the King of Kings with everlasting dominion, that you, are, you wear this sashed robe of priestly mediation, that you do stand in the presence of the Father, interceding for us constantly. That you've got the white hair of ancient wisdom to teach us the truth. You've got the blazing eyes of hope. You see everything that's really going on in our lives. Thank you, you have the bronze feet of total conquest. You are utterly victorious. We praise you that you speak with a thundering voice, that it's obvious what you're saying. Thank you, you have this mighty hand with which to protect your people. The sharp sword of judgment coming out of your mouth to declare upon our eternity and the shining face of transcendent glory. Lord Jesus, we try and imagine something of what you're like. We can see that you are glorious and victorious and permanent. And in our hearts, Lord, we do want to fall down before you and surrender to you and cry mercy. We are so sorry for standing against you. And we surrender before you. And we want to hear these words for ourselves. Do not be afraid. We thank you that you control history. We thank you that you are permanent. We thank you that you have the keys to set us free from hell to join you in heaven. Jesus Christ, in our hearts this evening, we just want to praise you and worship you and adore you as our prophet, priest and king, as the, as the king enthroned on heaven. 
Thank you for showing us what you're like right now. And help us to remember that as we walk around on the earth and wait for your return. We ask it for your glory alone. Amen.